So I have been flat on my back, snug as a bug in my bed, when I would have this sense in my sleep that someone was watching me. And I'd snap wide awake to find one of my three young children, many years ago, standing by the side of my bed, staring at me with big old eyes. And they didn't say anything, and they wouldn't touch me or wake me up, but they would just stand there and stare. And all of a sudden, I'd be, whoa, wake up. I've also been flat on my back, snug as a bug in my bed, when I get a tap, a nudge, a push to roll over because I'm snoring like a bear. Wake up and stop waking me up. Always done in love. (laughs) I've been behind the wheel of my car, driving into the wee hours of the morning, absolutely exhausted when my body jerks. That's the worst feeling in the world. How long was I asleep? But your eyes are burning. You just want to close them for a second. But all of a sudden you wake up, because for goodness sake you're driving hundreds or thousands of pounds of metal on the road. There are so many ways to wake up. There are so many good reasons to wake up. But as you all know, waking up also doesn't always mean that you were asleep. There's other wake-up calls. Roughly 20 years ago, I was on medication for high blood pressure and high cholesterol. And so I happened to be sitting down one day for breakfast like old-fashioned people used to do, and I would read the newspaper. Remember the newspaper? I would read the newspaper while I was eating breakfast. That was my morning tradition. I was reading the paper one day, and I came across an article in the newspaper that told stories about several people across the United States who had died while on the medication that I was currently taking. And as the article stated, the doctors were recalling its use with patients. Like, that's not something you want to read in the morning paper. No call from my doctor, just a grim story in newsprint. So I did contact my doctor. I did stop taking the medication. And I would say that was a piece of the wake-up call in my life regarding my overall health. Have you ever had a wake-up call? A wake-up call happens when you receive somewhat shocking news, often unexpected, but it serves as a catalyst for change. And while not always fun, while sometimes maybe a bit startling, wake-up calls can be really good. Open your Bibles, if you have one, to Revelation the book of Revelation. We will put the verses up on the screens as well. Revelation chapter three. So we're now in the fifth letter of our series, seven letters. So we're almost through. This time, it's this letter written by Jesus through John to the church of Sardis. 
So the book of Revelation, if you've been with us the past month, it opens with this vision. John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, is in exile on the island of Patmos, and he's there on the Lord's day worshiping when he has a vision of the resurrected, risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus, in all of his full glory, tells John to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor because he has something to say to them. And make no mistake, for this church, the fifth church, Sardis, the letter was a wake-up call. Let's read it. I'll read it to you. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I've mentioned each week, these seven letters carry a very similar form in their construction, how they're built. They all share similar components. So it usually begins with a picture, a particular piece of the picture of Jesus. That was the the vision in Revelation 1. There's a, a line or two from that about what Jesus is, who he is. And then there's usually a word of commendation or encouragement, comfort. And then there's a word of challenge. And then there's a call to action. Most all the letters have that similar form. Jesus begins by saying, I know and again, over the past month, I think I have a slide for this. Uh, Jesus starts with this encouragement. To Ephesus, he says, I know your works. I know your toil, your patient endurance. To Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, that you've been slandered. To Pergamum, I know where you dwell, in, in a good way, how hard it is to live there, yet you hold fast my name. Thyatira, I know your works, love, faith, service, patient endurance. I know, I know, I know. And he speaks words of encouragement to that community. But now we come to the church of of Sardis. And Jesus says, I know, but he doesn't have a lot of good things to offer. There's really only one other letter like it, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. But here's what he says, verse 1. I know your works, and then it takes a turn. And he says, you have a reputation, a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. He says, I I know your works, but instead of receiving these words of blessing, they get a wake-up call from from Jesus. I would argue a wake-up call extended in his love for them. 
You see, instead of being alive, he says that they're dead. And instead of being awake, he says that they're asleep. And instead of being aware of what's going on, they really don't have a full grasp on what's happening among them. Jesus calls them out for not being woke in the most biblical sense of the word. There's a hot topic. I think it's a sobering word to the church. If I had to boil all of what Jesus says to the church in Sardis with a word or a phrase, I would say that this is a call for this church to have and to hold a present tense relationship with Jesus. A present tense relationship with Jesus. He wants them to have that kind of a relationship with himself. So I want to explain this in in, in three ways. Three wake-ups. Three main ways that I think probably would be wise for us to learn from, to listen to for ourselves. First of all, they're, they're called to wake up to the gap between their reputation and reality. That's a great pun for a church named reality, right? Wake up to the gap between your reputation and what is actually real, Jesus says, verse 1, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead, but you're dead. What's a reputation? Anyone? What other people think think about you, right? And usually a reputation is based on some sort of truth. Like at some point in time, you either acted a certain way, spoke a certain way, behaved a certain way, did a certain thing. Like usually, again, reputations can be stretched in some ways or misleading in some ways, but oftentimes reputations come from somewhere. So in this case, in the, in the church of Sardis, at one point in time, the gospel came to town. The good news of Jesus came to town. People became followers of Jesus, and there was a vibrant faith. This city uh, once was famous as the capital of the Lydian Empire. The gospel came. It was alive, vibrant. But as happens, time goes on and things can change. Their reputation may have been good things, lively things, vitality But this is the wake-up call of Jesus, that no one can afford to live on the fumes of the past alone. And Jesus exposes that not, not always is perception or reputation reality. Just because something was true 10 years ago doesn't mean it's true today. Just because something was true 10 months ago doesn't necessarily mean it's true today. Just because it happened 10 days ago doesn't necessarily mean it holds today. I think this is a really important reflective question for us to ask ourselves as individuals, but also as a community. Do you have any stories, encounters, or experiences of Jesus today? This week? Are there, are there things that would indicate a marker of a present tense relationship with God? 
I know for me, it's a red flag when all of my meaningful stories with God happened decades ago. I know it's a red flag for me when I can say, oh yeah, back when I was in high school, God did this and that, and I experienced this or that, or I can talk about a season of my life in college when I was sharing my faith and seeing people come to faith or meaningful time of, of seriously engaging God's word or meaningful times of engaging God in prayer, but it's been a long time. We can't afford to live on the fumes of the past. He is the great I am. And God does his work in the present and he wants a present tense relationship with you. This church had a reputation of vitality and life. But Jesus says, in actuality, you're you're dead. Is there any fresh wind in your life? Is there any fresh fire in our community? Do we have stories of the movement of God that didn't happen a long time ago? Are we living in the good old days? Or are we experiencing the God who says, I am the God who engages here and now, the God who wants to do stuff today? Here's some questions. I think I've got this up on the screen. When was the last time you were moved to tears? And tears don't tell the whole story. I love A.W. Tozer once said that the Bible was written in tears and to tears it will yield its best treasures. God has nothing to say to the frivolous person. When was the last time that you were moved to tears because of what God was doing among you? When was the last time you were overwhelmed with, with God's particular love for you? Like that you had the sense that he loved you and you knew that he loved you and it moved you in some way. When was the last time you confessed sin and tasted what forgiveness and repentance was like for yourself? When was the last time you marveled at an unanswered, or excuse me, an answered prayer? When was the last time you experienced and tasted the joy of new salvation? When was the last time you were quiet and still and enjoyed the the stillness of the presence of God? When was the last time you laughed in deep joy? The last time you were moved to right action? When was the last time you experienced awe, wonder, the ineffable love of God? Or is there a gap between maybe some past reputation and in your experience currently of God? It's possible for a church to look good on its website, even to look good on a Sunday morning. But Jesus says, actually, you're dead. If anyone knows the gap between reputation and reality, it's Chicago Bears fans like me. I I was born in Chicago. I became a football fan in the 80s when the Bears won the Super Bowl in 1985. And Chicago Bears fans live on the fumes of 1985. It's been 39 years since we won the Super Bowl. 
39 years, and yet we talk about the 85 Bears like it was yesterday. That's why they're going to win the Super Bowl next year. (laughs) We can't live on the stories of yesteryear. It's true in a marriage. It's true in a friendship. It's true in a church. It is true with God. Might there be a gap between our reputation and reality? Wake up, Jesus says. Second thing is to wake up to the things that are about to die. Verse 2, he says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Here's one of the things that happens when you fall asleep when you're coasting, when you're out of touch, when you're sleepwalking through life, you aren't the most aware, aware of what is really going on. And you don't have your, your finger on the pulse of things. And Jesus is like, actually, wake up, because there are some things that are about ready to die. There are some good things that are on the verge of death. And the call to this church is to wake up and to engage those things before the good things are gone. Now, one quick word maybe about this. Uh, This verse could be taken in a way, this passage in a way that maybe it was not intended to. When Jesus talks here about death and dying, again, verse 1, he says, despite their reputation, they're dead. And then he says here, verse 2, he's warning that things are about to die. I want to remind us here the context of this letter is it's a community conversation. And he's referring to them as a church, speaking about their death, speaking about things that are about to die, rather than simply individually, though the individuals are also a part of the conversation. But there are many verses that I could read, point to, that talk about God's rescuing work of taking us from death to life, right? Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. Jesus in John 5.24 talks about in faith in him that we would pass from death to life. Jesus also in John 10.29 speaks as the good shepherd and says that no one can snatch my sheep from my hand. So this is less about talking about a person's individual salvation of like going from death to life to death. Like you're going to ping pong back and forth, back and forth between losing your salvation or doing this thing that God can kick you out out of heaven for. This is more of a community conversation, a call to pay attention to, strengthen but that it's possible for a church that once experienced life and vitality to die. To use the lampstand analogy, there are times when God has turned the lights out on that church. But the invitation is to wake up, take stock, pay attention, strengthen what remains because there are some things that are about to die. Also, we don't know fully, because he doesn't explain what was happening in this church, but I do find this phrase helpful at the end of verse 2. 
we read it from the ESV, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The NIV says, I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And I find that phrase helpful. Emphasis on the words unfinished. Jesus says, when I walk around your church community, there's some unfinished business to tend to. And if you don't tend to the unfinished business, some things may die. Have you ever tried to keep a plant alive? (laughs) For some, spending lots of money on these beautiful indoor plants with unfinished business, and then it's too late when you realize, oh, I haven't watered that thing in how long? Sometimes in the faith, we can be excellent starters. We can have all the right motives and all the right intentions, but we don't see them through to the end. So again, another good discernment question, reality church, might there be any unfinished business in our community? Unfinished relationships that need tending to. Unfinished conflict that needs repair. Unfinished commitments that we said, I'll, I'll do that, and then we don't see it through. Unfinished service, unfinished giving, things you once said yes to, but then time and life have gotten away and they've been left undone. Jesus in his love says, wake up. Tend to these things. Pay attention to the things that may be about to die. And then finally, the final piece of the wake-up call. Wake up to the forgotten ways that have been received. Have you ever been to the beach before? Here in the, the Pacific Northwest, we go to the beach, not to go on the water, though. We go to the beach to fly kites, make sandcastles, go to the stores, drink coffee. But when I was a kid, every summer, my family would go to Cannon Beach on the Oregon coast. That was our, that was our summer vacation. Every week, we would spend about a week at the Cannon Beach. And when I was younger, my brother and I would go in the water because we were young (laughs) and didn't know any better. And we would play. And our parents would sit on their blankets or lawn chairs and my brother and I would go out and we'd splash around, swim around, and we would try and catch waves. We had no idea what we were doing. We tried to body surf. At Cannon Beach doesn't work very well. But after 30 minutes, after an hour, what happens? You, You look up from where you are and you realize... My parents once were right here on the, on the sand, on the beach, with their towel and their chairs, and an hour later, I'm over here. Why? Because of the tide. Because of drift. Some things never change. Verse 3, Jesus says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. 
What, what's Jesus getting at here? This, 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 this Jesus thing, this faith thing, this God thing, the God story is something that is passed down from generation to generation. Frankly, if you're honest, the reason why you know about Jesus and the kingdom of God is because someone told it to you. For me, there were many people who've been a part of telling me the story of Jesus, but my parents were a huge piece of that in my life. They shared the good news of Jesus, the heart of the gospel story, and it's passed on and passed on again and again. It's something that is heard and received and then passed on, and it's heard and received and passed on, which is beautiful, but there's also a danger in that kind of a model Eugene Peterson once wrote, he quotes Charles Williams. He says, at the moment when it is remotely possible that a whole generation might have learned something, both of theory and practice, the learners and their learning are removed by death, and the church is confronted with the necessity of beginning all over again. The whole labor of regenerating mankind has to begin again every 30 years or so. So the truth of the gospel is shared with others and received. But just after a while when people begin to grow in these things and learn these things and practice these things, they die. (laughs) And so the church faces this thing that every 30 years or so, you have to ask the question, what is true? What has been received? What needs to be practiced? Each generation learns, each generation practices the faith, but when they die, the next generation has to learn all over again. And about every 30 years, we're in danger of losing all that has been gained. And then Peterson goes on talking about this church. He says, their sluggish lives were propped up by termite-ridden timbers of a once vigorous religion. And he uses this imagery of wood and timbers that had been eaten out by termites. And it looked good at once on the surface, but deep down there wasn't anything to sustain it. What has been passed down? What has been heard? What has been received? Eventually, all that's left are the forgotten ways. I honestly think the American church needs to pay attention to this. As time goes on and culture erodes and the forming voices of all of life begins to eat away at what we have heard and received. Have we strayed from what we know to be true? The the reputation reality gap, the unfinished deeds unto death, the forgotten ways of knowing and following Jesus. It's possible for a church at one point in time to be vigorously following Jesus and then decades later having let go of what they believe to be true. And so Jesus urges them. What does he say? He says, remember and repent. Remember and repent. 
It's almost like Jesus knows that remembrance and repentance are the keys that unlock a present tense relationship with Jesus. Remember. Remember what you received, verse 3. Remember what you heard. Keep it and repent for dismissing it. Remember and repent. Have you ever heard of a man named Blaise Pascal? Brilliant. Brilliant Frenchman. He lived in the 1600s. Genius. Mathematician, physicist, philosopher, inventor. So the dude as a teenager invented the mechanical calculator. I was playing basketball. (laughs) He's considered one of the fathers of statistical probability. He invented the hydraulic press and the syringe. The dude was wicked smart. 1654. In 1654, Blaise Pascal had an encounter with God. And it was so profound, it was so impactful, that he wrote down his experience on a piece of parchment. Here's what he wrote. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight. Fire! God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God will be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel. Grandeur of the human soul. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have departed from him. They have forsaken me. The fount of living water. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from him forever. This is eternal life that they know you, the one true God, and the one that you sent, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I left him. I fled him, renounced, crucified. Let me never be separated from him. He is only kept securely by the ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation total and sweet complete submission to Jesus Christ and to my director, eternally in joy for a day's exercise on earth. May I not forget your words. Amen. I call that an ambush. This brilliant genius was ambushed by the living God and this person who wrote in like brilliant prose is reduced to one-word sentences. This guy can roll with the most complicated highbrow theories, and now he's like, me, God, fire, joy, joy. Like, he can't even speak. The guy who, who lives on complex theorems is blown away with an encounter with God. Christ came to dwell in his heart by faith and he was rooted and grounded in love. How else do you explain the grunts of a genius? But also, here's what I tell the story is that Pascal knew the power of remembrance. And so what he did is he took that parchment and he had it sewn into his coat 
so that every day, no matter where he went, he would have that as a reminder of his relationship with the one who ambushed him in love. And even after he would burn through a coat and need a new coat, he would unstitch it and stitch it into his new coat. And his family found it in his coat when he died. As he ends that, may I not forget your words. Remembrance. Calling to mind. Even bringing the things that have been received from the past into the present. Repentance of turning from the broken ways of the past into the present. Bringing the love and the grace and the power of the living God into the present moment is the opportunity and the gift offered to us again today. Because it's possible to fall asleep to push aside the forgotten ways, the forgotten truths, the forgotten experiences of the God who breaks in. In Sardis, at the end of the letter, here's the, the word of comfort that he gives, is that he says, there are actually a few in your community. There's still a few names. It's not the majority, but it's the minority. There's still a few who haven't soiled their garments in idolatry. There are still some who are walking with Jesus in white. And he promises never to lose their name. He promises to confess their name before the Father. And he reminds them that it's an honor even to be in a community of, of the few, the fellowship of the few, who have woken up to who God is. Remember and repent. What might Jesus be saying to us? Sleeping is not the posture of resurrection. The grave is not the destination of resurrection. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Wake up, church. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Lord, I know these letters and these ancient churches can feel like so far in the past and we're so far removed because of the cultural divide and yet these same words are instructive to us. God, I pray for our church that we would live up to our name of being Reality Church living out of a real deep, present tense relationship with you, not based on facade, not based on the past, but based upon a risen Savior, the great I Am, who wants to deal with us today. So God, I pray for uh, wisdom, I pray for discernment, I pray for an ability to hear what the Spirit would say, the things left undone, the places where maybe we're blind to, 
Show our blind spots, Father. And may you root us and ground us again in the amazing gospel of the kingdom that you save and redeem by your grace. And you desire to to have fellowship with us here and now. You desire to use us here and now. You desire to move among us here and now. God, would you be active? May we have ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.